Well, as you're making your way back to your seats, I would invite you to go ahead and turn in a Bible. You can look at the bulletin, which is on page 9. It features that passage from Luke 18. As you know, we have been journeying through the latter half of Luke's gospel and have been marinating really here in chapter 18 for a number of weeks simply because the stories that that Luke delivers just one upon the other there in the 18th chapter are so rich and beautiful and have so much to say to us. And so you can reference Luke 18 there on page 9, but I actually want to direct our attention a little bit differently today and ask you to flip over to Mark chapter 10 if you brought a Bible. If you didn't, that's okay. You can just listen. But I want us to actually detour, if you will, over to Mark's gospel and read his account of this same story. As you know, these are what we refer to as the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so they are telling the same story, if you will, but from different angles. And so they write them a bit differently and they order them a bit differently. Uh, And so Mark, particularly in the way he recorded this story, gives us a few more details. Uh, And also the way that he structured his gospel, you see um, the story that we'll read today sort of in contrast to another story in the same chapter. And it all turns on a similar refrain or a similar phrase, which we'll see. So again, that was a long-winded intro, but turn over to Mark 10 is the bottom line. If you heard nothing else, turn to Mark 10, and we'll read his account of the same story here in Luke. It's in verse 46. It says, And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples, that is Jesus, and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. But many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, Let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God, it stands forever. I love that question. You see it there. What do you want me to do for you? You'll notice it. What do you want me to do for you? This was the question that Jesus 
poses to the blind Bartimaeus, and it's the same exact question. You may remember this if you've looked in Mark's gospel before, and we have at certain times. You'll remember that this question which is posed to blind Bartimaeus is the same exact question posed to two of Christ's disciples earlier in the passage. In fact, if you have a Bible, again, if you don't, it's okay, you can listen, but if you have a Bible, if you look there in Mark 10, verses 35 and following, it says that James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus and said to him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Can you imagine? (laughs) Such boldness. And Jesus replied, what do you want me to do for you? Notice that same question, but notice the difference in posture. Notice the difference in how the question is answered, for that difference is crucial. It's crucial in us understanding the beauty of the gospel that Jesus came to announce And it's crucial in us understanding the nature of the kingdom that he has come to bring. If you remember, as we have looked in Luke's gospel, and particularly here in the 18th chapter, that is the very crux, if you will, of the question. What kind of kingdom is this man bringing? And as you know, the kind of kingdom that he brings is often in direct opposition to the expectations of what his disciples had in mind. So again, the difference in the answer to that question, that same question, it's crucial in us understanding the kind of kingdom that he came to bring. For as you know, James and John are insiders to the ministry of Jesus. They are called as two of his earliest disciples. And so because of that, they are front row witnesses or a front row audience to his ministry, to his teaching, and to his miracle working, to his interactions with People. They are on the mountain even when he is transfigured. They are part of that inner circle of disciples who are given even greater access than some of the others are. And yet, as happens so often, when we are around something for too long or we are too close to something for too long, we begin to lose the wonder. We begin to no longer see it for what it is. It becomes white noise. It becomes too familiar. And that's what happened with James and John. When these two insiders finally were given their moment alone with Jesus and they're face to face with the living God and they're taken from their front row seat and given VIP access now backstage of all the things they could have used it for, of all the things they could have asked for, all the things they could have said. What do they say? Teacher, we want you to do for us. We want you to do for us whatever we ask. Thank you, Jesus. We have seen enough. We'll take it from here. If you're a Star Wars fan, remember when Luke has to go through his Jedi training with Yoda and only gets so far that he has to leave, what is that, that swampy planet he's on? I forget what it was called, some funny swampy planet, okay? But he has to leave to go save the day, to go save Leah and the others, right? And as we know, the story ends well, you know, okay, it's all good. But he, thank you, Yoda, I'll take it from here, right? I'm now the Jedi Master, even though he wasn't yet. 
Okay? Well, again, thank you, Jesus. We'll, we'll take it from here. It reminds me of that bumper sticker. Hopefully none of you have it. Okay? If you do, don't take offense. Jesus is my co-pilot. Right? Okay? Jesus is my co-pilot. Well-intended. Don't get me wrong. Well-intended. All right? But it's so much more than that. He's not our assistant. <laughs> he's not, you know, he's not our sidekick. But again, here, Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And again, when Jesus responds with that all-important question, what do you want me to do for you? They replied with that preposterous answer. Grant us, Jesus, grant us to sit one at your right and one at your left in your glory. Again, it sounds good, and we know they're, 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 they're misguided at this point. They don't see the, the full picture yet, and they won't until the resurrection. But again, this is yet another example, and we're now seeing it week after week, another example of how Christ's first followers still see his kingdom as an earthly one. And so because of that, they are lobbying for positions in his cabinet. They are trying to call, you know, shotgun as early as possible, right? You call shotgun to get, the, to get the pastor side seat in the car. You don't want to sit in the back. You don't want to sit on the hump, right, with the seatbelt, and it's very uncomfortable. You want to sit shotgun, right? So you call it as quickly as you can. That's sort of what's happening here with the disciples. They're calling it as early as they can because they're still imagining Christ is going to come and he's going to knock the Romans' heads together and he's going to set up this earthly kingdom and they want to call dibs on the positions of power and influence. So again, even though they had their front row seat and they had every advantage to see Christ for who he really is and to see the gospel in all of its magnificent and mysterious glory, they evidence here, like, like a lot of us can, that their focus though, when it comes to the kingdom of God, is still relatively self-focused. How does God fit into our agendas? How do we sprinkle a little bit of God kind of into our recipe for how the world should work or how our lives should go or how the kingdom should advance? And so we see that their default position, that is James and John, is this default position of self-focus. And their default position, though, is also, if you think about it, a religious one. It's a religious focus. How do we earn our seat next to Jesus? How do we earn that VIP seating of his right and his left hand? How do we do something in order to transact the standing before God that we desire? What can we do, again, for God to return to us out of a position of spiritual debt, really, what it is we're looking for. Again, Jesus paid it all, all to him we owe, but a lot of times we want to flip that. We want to flip that. Now God owes us because of something that we have done. We have paid something. We have paid morality. We have paid uh, pious, you know, piety. We have paid whatever, and God now owes us. And so this is the thinking of the disciples. Religion is a transaction. Religion is a reward whether it be for good behavior or pedigree or morality. Again, religion says that we can actually ask for the seat of honor in God's kingdom because we have surely done something or surely been someone who, again, merits such a position. But how did Christ respond? How did he respond? 
because we know the truth, because he is the truth, he's also the way and the life, he rightly replied to their default way of thinking and said, you do not know what you are asking. (laughs) Oh, my friends, you do not know what you are asking. James and John did not yet know how grace works. How grace works. They also did not know what they were asking because as we saw last week, the way forward is the way of the cross. The cross precedes the crown of glory. And that was true, as we mentioned last week, not just in our original salvation, but it's also true in terms of how the Christian life functions and how the Christian life unfolds. Prosperity gospel is no gospel. The cross precedes the crown. We are disciples who follow in the way of the master. And so the same thing is true for us. And yet they don't yet see that. If you want to know more about that way of thinking, listen to last week's sermon. You can get it on our website. But check it out because that's what we are told is that the cross always precedes the crown. And they don't yet see that here. But for today, what we see is that they keep scratching their heads. The disciples keep scratching their heads when he chooses the sinful tax collector over the pious Pharisee or the empty-handed widow over the power-broken judge or the children who cannot make a contribution to the Jesus campaign that they kind of are, are, are thinking is being launched here in Galilee or in this case in Jericho. And again, because this is their default position, Mark, in his literary genius, Mark, as he organizes the gospel and does so with Peter's eyewitness contributions, Mark here lumps these stories together. He puts these stories together. And so after this misguided dialogue on the part of the disciples, who is it that we meet? We meet the blind man. We meet Bartimaeus. And notice how different he is from James and John in his posture and his response to Jesus. James and John have been eyewitnesses to the wonder of Christ. Insiders to his every move, again, backstage passes. James and John have every advantage, as it were, to this king of glory And in their moment to shine, you know, they're being brought up on stage. It's a rock concert and they get get to be brought up on stage and sing along with, you know, with the lead singer, with Jesus, right? And in their moment, oh, they they fall back into, into religious thinking. And yet Bartimaeus, on the other hand, has not been an eyewitness to Jesus. Isn't that the case? Bartimaeus hasn't been an eyewitness to anything. He's a blind beggar, not traveling with Jesus and seeing the show, but trapped in his same roadside perch day in and day out, in darkness and despair and desperation. And again, unlike James and John who have gotten used to Jesus and because they have gotten so used to Jesus, they no longer see him, You no longer see the wonder. Bartimaeus hasn't seen anything 
at all. But in this moment, what does he realize? That this is the chance of a lifetime coming his way. There's no time to polish the speech. There's no time to edit the resume. No time to alphabetize his wish list or or mince words. Bartimaeus, if you notice, doesn't ask for the usual handout when people come his way on his roadside perch. Doesn't ask for alms. Doesn't ask for a few spare coins. He wants something so much more than that. He wants to be made new. He wants to be made whole, given a new lease on life. And so notice here even the contrast in the gospel account to the rich young ruler who we also looked at a few weeks ago. The rich young ruler came to Jesus with his entourage and his reputation and he came asking Jesus what he must do to inherit eternal life. Again, it's religious, it's, it's transactional. That's what happens when, again, we can sometimes, all of us included, can allow things about our lives, our prestige, our position, our affluence. And again, we all have a degree of that to some extent. We all have a degree of that to some extent. Those things, whatever accomplishments that we look to can blind us to our true need and desperation. And so Jesus reminded the young ruler, there's nothing he can do. And James and John were reminded of the same thing. But Bartimaeus here, because he has nothing He understands it more quickly. He understands it immediately. And he cannot help but do one thing. He cries out. He cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. You see, Bartimaeus is a case study of what it looks like when we are even remotely self-aware and stand before the living God. So many of the people who come before Jesus in these gospel accounts are not (laughs) self-aware. And so because of that, they, they feel this need to project or to polish or to be prim and proper even in his presence, but not Bartimaeus. He's a case study of what it looks like to be self-aware, deeply and keenly understanding of one's predicament. And when that happens, we don't talk about ourselves, do we? We're not self-talkers, but all we want to talk about is God's grace. It's God's mercy. All we thirst for is deliverance. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for thee, O Lord. And you can hear that and feel that in the response of Bartimaeus. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Notice again the contrast. Jesus, we want you to do for us Whatever we ask, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. If this was a multiple choice test, which do you choose? (laughs) A, B, or C, right? Good, good answer, whoever said C. And again, notice how as he cries out, the people around him, again, in their religious fanfare posture, they silence this man. Wait your turn. God doesn't have time for you. 
Bartimaeus, you cut to the front of the line. You didn't come in through the proper channels. Again, it's as if the disciples in their minds are starting to roll out that, that velvet, you know, VIP rope, right? No, 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 you can't. What are you doing? What are you doing? But here, thankfully, Bartimaeus knows nothing of religion or decorum. He's desperate and he's looking for rescue. And rescue, as we know, is not a reward. It's not something we can plan for or achieve. Rescue is simply crying out in our moment of desperation and finding there's one good enough and strong enough to save us. And the basis of his saving isn't us, but it's him. It's him. And that is the good news, and that is the gospel. And so again, as this man continues to cry out and refuses to be silent, don't you love the response of Jesus? Call him. Call him. Have you ever wondered why Mark, again, this is why we went to Mark's gospel, why does Mark bother to tell you the name of this blind beggar? Luke did it. Why does Mark bother to tell us his father's name and the town that he hails from? The author and uh, speaker and pastor Paul Tripp, his um, thinking on this passage, his preaching on this passage has heavily influenced mine. And Paul Tripp and his words on this passage points out that Mark bothers with these details because he wants us to see that even though Jesus, the living God, is journeying headlong on his way to Jerusalem. Again, recall the goal, recall how it's all swirling and building and culminating into his entrance, the triumphal entry into the city where he will be delivered over into the hands of men and crucified. As Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to fulfill his ultimate purpose and his mission, and he's on his way to the cross, and he knows what's coming. Remember, in last week's passage in Luke 18.31, he once again predicts his death and his suffering. Even though for Jesus, all of human history is barreling towards that moment, and it will culminate in that great salvation event on Calvary, even though all that is happening behind the scenes and in the mind of Jesus, he stops. He stops. And he has time. See, the wonder of this passage preached the wrong way, if the wonder of this passage is the persistence of Bartimaeus, it's noble that we could, we can learn a lot from that. When people try to silence us, right, we cry all the more. We point to Jesus all the more. But the wonder of this passage is not the persistence of Bartimaeus. The wonder of this passage is the pause of Jesus. The wonder of this passage isn't the shouting of Bartimaeus, it's the stopping of Jesus. And that's true for us today. It's true for us today. That Jesus cares for Bartimaeus of Jericho like he cares 
for Tom of Lake Worth or Joel of Boynton Beach or Angela of Wellington. You see, Mark names this man because he has time. For where Christ was headed, that being the cross of Calvary, was indeed for the salvation of mankind. But Jesus, as we know, never deals in generalities. Never. Never deals in statistics. He never estimates and says, well, you know, Bartimaeus, I've been here now for about three years. If you weren't healed by now. But no. He stops. He stops. You see, Paul Tripp also points out that it's the cross, which is the great turning point in the battle of Jesus. The turning point against the curse upon creation that Satan ushered into the world through sin. And as Jesus draws towards that moment, he sees in Bartimaeus a specific and named example of someone with the effects of that curse that he came to destroy. The effects here for this man, again, are physical blindness. James and John also bore the effects of that curse. We all do, again, in our sin. We all do in our spiritual blindness. But because it's easy to hide under the surface spiritual blindness, we sometimes forget our need. And again, we become religious. We make it about us. Bartimaeus couldn't hide the effects upon him. He couldn't hide it. He saw it in, in quotes, right? He saw it every day, his blindness in what he didn't see. He knew to the very core of his existence that the world was broken. His blindness was not a result of sin, but a result of being just simply a part of a sinful and fallen world. And so he rightly recognizes his need. He can't hide it. He wouldn't be silenced. He wouldn't take no for an answer. And he cries out in his brokenness. And Jesus hears him and sees him and loves him and makes time for him. And he again does the same thing for us. So the question as we close is, how about you? How about me? How about us this morning? Are we, like James and John, so familiar with Jesus but not really knowing him at all? Trusting in our access, our membership, our background, but really looking more to ourselves than we are to him? Or are we like Bartimaeus, aware of our blindness, aware of our darkness and despair, our true need and dependency, not looking at ourselves, not claiming merits of our own, but wholly dependent and desperate for his mercy? For Jesus, at some point, asks all of us, what do you want me to do for you. And in that moment, may we abandon the religion of self. May we embrace the gospel of our salvation. May we never forget, apart from him, that we too were blind, but now we see. And may the cry of our hearts never be anything less than Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you, we thank you 
for coming to us in our place of greatest need, for doing for us what we can never do for ourselves, for like the Apostle Paul, turning us around as we barrel headlong or along our own way, but intervening, turning us towards your grace, life everlasting in your presence, removing the scales from our eyes that we might see things for what they really are, that we might see your truth, your life, your way, which is ours in Christ. So Father, thank you for the example of Bartimaeus. Thank you that it is us writ large and that you have had time for us and still have time for us and are with us. For we too were blind, but now we see. So we love you, we praise you for all that you've done. In Christ's name, amen.